she saw what was in Michigan. She saw all of this uh, you know, amazing furniture design, Herman Miller, you know, Florence Knoll. She saw the effect of you know, these educational institutions like the University of Michigan and Cranbrook. She saw what automotive designers were designing in Detroit that was spread again worldwide. And what architects, whether they were you know, factory architects like Albert Kahn or skyscraper architects or shopping center architects. Welcome to part two of the Mid-Century Books podcast with Alan Hess. I just want to get back to the topic of mid-century modernism in terms of it's a theme that you've returned to many times in your publishing career. I'm wondering what keeps you coming back to this topic? How has the study of this topic changed over time? And how does this latest book, for which you were a contributor, fit into your career bibliography? Yeah, there's, uh, I keep coming back to it because there's still so much more that has not been uh, documented uh, as well. For example, this this book, um, as I mentioned, you know, Michigan was kind of left out of the story of modernism uh, until Amy Arnold and uh, Brian Conway, the editors of Michigan Modern, um, uh, kind of uh, realized that we needed that they needed a book about Michigan that would really tell this story. And I remember when I first uh, met them uh, and we were talking about this and uh, Amy in particular was very un- uncertain about it. She saw what was in Michigan. She saw all of this uh, you know, amazing furniture design, Herman Miller, you know, Florence Knoll. She saw the effect of you know these educational institutions like the University of Michigan and Cranbrook. She saw what automotive designers were designing in Detroit that was spread again worldwide. And what architects, whether they were you know factory architects like Albert Kahn or skyscraper architects or shopping center architects or or tracked home uh, architects, whatever, there was a new spirit there coming out of Michigan, but it wasn't being told. It wasn't in the history books. And so that is what led them to put together the original exhibit that this book is based upon and write this book. The book is an incredible contribution to our understanding of the the real nature of modernism. Um, I've been based out uh, in uh, California. I did, uh, I, I have lived in Michigan and so I have a lot of connections there, and I and I knew what what was there, and just how important it was to the history of modern architecture in general. So uh, at the beginning of this project, I was able to assure them that they were right on the money. They were after something that was so important for everyone to understand, um, and I'm, I'm glad that they they followed up. Since then, I've been more, uh, I've been based in California. So I've been uh, often, like my first book, uh, which is called Googie 50s Coffee Shop Architecture, was about these ultra modern roadside coffee shops that were designed to be uh, for the people who were driving around Los Angeles in their automobiles. 
and not only coffee shops, but uh, car washes and gas stations and car dealerships, uh, drive-in laundries, all of these types of buildings that people were now in the modern era with their automobiles able to, to use. And it was incredibly in, innovative and inventive architecture, architectural designs. And Los Angeles, as well as Detroit, really were two of the most creative centers of design through the mid-century period. Young architects who really wanted to get into the, you know, the, the, the heart of what was going on, what was new, uh, what was coming next, what was progressive, they went either to Detroit to practice or they came to Los Angeles to practice. And so both cities just developed an incredible uh, pool of talent. Um, uh, people like um, Minoru Yamasaki in Detroit or Victor Gruen in Los Angeles and Detroit. Uh, John Lautner, who was born in Michigan but really had his career in Los Angeles. Uh, Armin Davis, who designed many of the uh, these uh, Googie coffee shops that I mentioned uh, earlier. Um, many, many, many others. So uh, these two cities, Detroit and Los Angeles, became the real um, centers of creative design in this modern era. And again, that's a story that has not completely been expressed in the history books up to now. So I'm curious what your take is on the historic preservation of mid-century modernism. I mention this because there are some people who probably assume that historic preservation is for something that's hundreds of years old, a Civil War battlefield, for example. Yes. Um, they may not be aware that there is an effort to preserve mid-century modernist buildings, many of which are already multiple decades old, might be in need of repair or maintenance. And I'm curious if that was at all part of the agenda of this book to raise awareness about the preservation of, of mid-century modernist buildings. Definitely. That, in fact, was the, the uh, initial reason for this book, because uh, um, Amy Arnold and Brian Conway both work in the State Office of Historic Preservation in Michigan. And um, Brian is the, uh, the state preservation officer there. And they realized that there were all of these buildings that were at the time 40, 50, 60 years old, um, fairly recent within the memory of people still living. And yet they told, these buildings told this amazing story and they were unique in the history of the world as well for that story that they that they told. And so uh, that's why uh, Amy and Brian originally started this project was to catalog these and to put them in a context so that people would understand exactly why, you know, a factory or a drive-in restaurant uh, was significant, as significant. Well, I like to uh, you know, compare it here to our history in California. Uh, the you know the the the, uh, the the basic historic building in California are the missions built in the 18th century by the Franciscan friars 
when they came up from Mexico and were settling uh, Alta California. And they built these beautiful adobe and stone missions. And those are historic. Uh, they tell how life was lived in the 18th and early 19th centuries in this part of the world. And that's why we honor them. That's why they're historic. But just as important are these mid-century buildings to tell the story of their era. Uh, they tell how people lived and why it was significant, why the average person's life had changed in ways that were really inconceivable shortly before. And this is part of the history. It's part of who we are. It's part of our identity. And these buildings express that. So whether in Michigan or here in California, these buildings, the, those that remain that have not yet been demolished, and many of them have been uh, uh, torn down, but those that remain are so much are so intertwined with who we are and why we are and why our cities are the way they are. Um, and this is all part of the, the role of historic preservation in the quality of life of an American city. Um, so uh, this book, as I said, uh, Brian and Amy um, put it together in order to let people know in Michigan in particular, uh, why these mid-century modern buildings were important in order to be able to save them. And they have saved quite a number of really important buildings as a result of this project. So now I'm going to ask you a little bit of a tough question, which is, can you comment at all on any controversy around saving mid-century modernism in Michigan? I mean, for example, what comes to mind for me is the attempt to demolish the Willow Run factory where the World War II bombers were made. Uh, sorry to put you on the spot, Alan. I just, I just was wondering if you could uh, go a little bit deeper onto this topic. Sure. Well, uh, historic preservation is a, a very broad um, uh, field. It is not just saving house museums and preserving them in amber so that we can see how people lived in 1890. It's much more complex and architectural. and It has a lot to do with urban planning as well. These buildings from the past uh, need to have a purpose today. And that purpose can be historical, but it can also be very uh, uh, practical and economic uh, as to today as well. So, um, yeah, uh, the Willow Run is one example, just a remarkable achievement of modern technology and architecture back in World War II. Or another example might be um, the Highland Park factory. Uh, that Henry Ford built in the teens. Um, just a phenomenal design that changed the entire world as well. Um, most of it is now a shopping center. Most of it was torn down and turned into a shopping center uh, as well uh, a couple of years ago. Something is lost when we do that. But that isn't to say that, you know, buildings, uh, all old buildings need to be saved. They need to find a role in today's world. Um, and there are examples of that 
which are going on. Another early automotive factory, also by Albert Kahn, the great architect and engineer, uh, for Packard, um, it has been a, a ruin for decades now. I mean, literally falling apart, uh, windows broken, you know, collapsing roofs, a ruin with trees growing up in the middle of it. Um, and so, um, uh, but there is now today a, uh, a, a viable project to turn it into uh, new factory spaces, new office spaces, new living spaces, et cetera. It's, it's immense. It's a huge, uh, a, a huge facility, but it is uh, going to be turned into a, a living building, which could contribute to the economic vitality of Detroit today. So it is possible to do that, even with these old buildings. Um, it is important these days, in, the, in these days when uh, we are interested in sustainability, when we realize that we need to be wise about our use of energy. Uh, it's important for us to realize that existing buildings, old buildings represent an asset of embodied energy, uh, the, the energy that it took to make its concrete, its steel, its glass, etc. Um, we can't just throw that away. Energy is too important these days. So that's why we can look at these creative ways of adapting these older buildings, mid-century modern buildings, um, to, uh, to new uses. There are a couple of other controversies which are really, yeah, really, really hairy. One is Northland Shopping Center in Detroit. Actually, it's in Southfield, right on the border of Detroit. This was opened in 1954. It was really the first time that the idea of a shopping mall had been pulled together with all of its facets that we would now recognize as, as a shopping mall. Uh, it was designed by Victor Gruen, an Austrian who was uh, working in Los Angeles and built this for Detroit. Um, it, it was an obvious place to build a new shopping center because of the prosperity and the auto-centric nature of Detroit. Well, it, it closed down, I think about a year ago, entirely. And uh, the last I heard, it's going to be demolished and some sort of new residential development is going to be built on its site. Now, this is a historic building. This is a building which, as much as any other, really set the pattern for modern American life. And yet, it is going to disappear. Now, across town uh, in Detroit, in Warren, Michigan, is another uh, very important landmark of mid-century modern design and planning. Uh, planning being how individual buildings relate to the entire city. And that is the General Motors Technical Center, designed by Eero Saarinen. And it was opened uh, just a year or two after Northland Shopping Center was. And what it was, was a modern office park, office and research development park. Um, again, another building block of the modern American city. That building, the General Motors Tech Center, uh, fortunately has been very well tended by General Motors over the years. 
and um, it continues in its original function today. So um, we win some and we lose some. Uh, it's unfortunate, but we need to, uh, to fight to save as many as we can.